Hello, I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theatre writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Uphoff-Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theatre in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 58 of Theatre Forward. Wow, all right. So this episode, we are talking about monologues and why they're such a valuable aspect of theater. Uh, We're in the mood for this particular conversation because later this month, we will be opening our sixth biannual monologue festival here at Forward, which will be live and in person. Yay! Very excited. Uh, So we thought we would talk about monologues in general and the, the role that they play, pun intended, here in our in our industry, in our field, in our chosen art form. Well, I, I, I mean, as somebody who was not around at the in the in the mists of time at the beginning of forward, <laughs> Jen up off gray, I'd be curious why from the very beginning, you know, this is our sixth monologue festival as, on our every other year schedule. What was it with you and or the advisory company that made this something you wanted to have it, uh, integral to what forward would be? Yeah, well, you know, full credit um, for the idea and the early execution of our monologue festivals goes to uh, Gwendolyn Rice, who was an early member of our advisory company and of our staff, um, who's a, she's a playwright and a, and a critic herself. Um, and she had participated in some monologue festivals at some other companies, I think, around the Midwest. Um, and so she brought the idea for it. Uh, to forward right in our first season. Um, And I think what really caused us to latch onto it is that um, it was a very uh, easy way for us to jump into supporting new writers, which was something we were really eager to do out of the gate Although you know we we, we barely had any staff at all, let alone a literary department and, and, you know, tackling world premiere plays and commissions and all of that was was far beyond our ken at that point. But we still wanted to be helping to support and nurture new writers right away. And and so that was appealing that it was a way because it's a, it's a way a lot of early writers can cut their teeth. Of course, you know, also very well established and experienced writers also uh, enjoy the the challenge of crafting a good monologue. But um but it, it is an easy entry point um, for people who maybe have not tried their hand at playwriting very much. And we liked that. It also was a wonderful opportunity because we started out of the gate as an equity company, um, you know, doing full-time rehearsals. We didn't follow the path a lot of early, um, you know, new companies do where it's like, well, we'll start out and, and be sort of on guest artist contracts and we'll just rehearse evenings and weekends. And everybody who's working on our shows will have other, um, other full-time jobs that they're juggling. Um, because of the the gap that we were filling in the sort of fabric of the, the local arts theater uh, ecology, we've jumped in right away with full-time, full equity contracts, six-day week rehearsals, all of that. And But we were aware that there are so many talented theater directors and actors here in our community 
who do have these other full-time jobs that preclude them from being in a, one of our main stage productions. And the, the cool thing about our monologue festival, the way it works is, you know, we have open submissions, we get a couple of hundred pieces, we jury them down to a dozen, and then we hire a dozen different directors and a dozen different actors. And then each little team goes off and works their monologue up until our festival weekend of performances. And so it's a really flexible way for artists to engage with us as well. So um, I think those were the really big draws early on. And after we did the first festival, we were just hooked because it was so much fun. And you know, you've got three dozen artists plus all of the crew that come together just really quick for this weekend of performances and audiences love them. Um, you know, I keep saying they're the smorgasbord of, of theater or the potluck dinner. Um, and that, yeah, we've just been really hooked on them ever since. So, so that's, that's the history there, Mike. I loved what you said about um, acknowledging, because I think people forget this in, in fiction, which Jan, I know you read a lot of as well, with, with the difference between short stories and novels. And people think of short story writers as people who are starting out en route to becoming great great novelists, you know? Um, I mean, George Saunders might have a thing or two to say about that along with a million other people, but, <laughs> but that's that's where people's minds are at. And one of the things that this pandemic by necessity has reminded us of is, you know, monologues are indeed a, a place for people to start. We had these 24 hour viral monologue festivals out of New York every week early on, but I also got to see two faith healers, two Molly Sweeney's, Little Gem by Elaine Murphy. I mean, the Irish in particular, some really great plays by great playwrights that revolve around, um, around the monologue. And it sort of made me fall in love all over again with a form that I think because I like stuff big and ambitious, that's not going to be news to anybody listening to this podcast. I forget about um, yeah. sometimes in, in thinking about theater. Yeah, well, and even short form monologues still, you know, well-established playwrights still enjoy the challenge. Write me a 10 minute monologue. Our very first festival uh, with, with its a dozen pieces, we had some pieces by first time writers who'd never written for the stage before. We also had two pieces by Christopher Durang you know, that, that, that he wrote for us. And so uh, it really is all encompassing and, and um, yeah, it doesn't have to just be the entree to a full length play. Um, well, and you see it in our, in our new one. I mean, you know, you've got Liz Duffy Adams, you know, who has been yeah. on our main stage before as an established playwright, just to single out one example of somebody whose work I adore. And on the other hand, people who are, you know, making their first step um, onto the stage. I love our theme. For this yeah. one coming up, which b became fortuitously more significant than I think <laughs> we Yeah, it, it's Why almost, <laughs> I mean, it is almost as bad as the fact that the play we were running when we had to shut down due to COVID was about the plague. Yeah. Because the mon our monologue festival, this theme, which was set a good year earlier than COVID, is within these walls, stories of home. <laughs> And we were inspired by, you know, we think of ourselves as a home base for artists and for audiences. It's in our mission statement. We really like this idea of what is home. I think we came up with the theme at the height of some of the um, conversations happening nationally about immigration in this country. And so we really thought that that might be an overriding theme in the pieces that we received. But then, of course, you know, we announced uh, the call for submissions. Uh, in the middle of a pandemic. So uh, a lot of the pieces wound up unsurprisingly being quite literally about being within these walls mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and what that has meant. 
Uh, yeah, it's uh, we 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 need to you know get out of the prediction business. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think the the form in general sort of lends itself. It, it, you know, I mean, I realize we've done monologue festivals on lots of things that go well beyond our walls, um, yeah. but it lends itself to things like this, as does the pandemic. I mean, you're dealing with isolated voices, um, often. Um, underscoring their own alienation, underscoring their inability to connect to uh, other people or feel completely, you know, sh shut out from or away from other people. And it does make me wonder, as those themes have, they've obviously resonated hugely in the last year. I mean, it makes me wonder whether, for all kinds of reasons, we're going to see a, a real revival, an ongoing revival um, of the monologue form, even as we move toward reopening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very possible. I suspect a lot of people were working up ideas for one, one person shows during this last year. Um, and, uh, I'm imagining some pretty brilliant ones will have come from that. But I mean, we're talking, I mean, there's so many different, um, contexts in which monologues occur. I mean, there's the context of, of our festivals, which is original pieces, 10 minutes or less that were, you know, written to this theme that are standalone. They're not part of a larger play. There's the kind you were just describing, Mike, that are really what, what we would might term a one actor show, sort of a full length um, piece. And then of course there's the monologues that occur in the middle of a standard play where you're, you're going along and there's dialogue and there's multi-person scenes, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden we, we have a monologue Shakespeare, of course, you know, we, we, we start, we start with that's, him. That's the, isn't that the first one? Isn't that the first of. one we learned? I was actually the to be or not to be speech. I was thinking, when's the first time I ever heard that? And I'd love to tell you it was some literary, you know, my parents took me to see Hamlet, but no, it was Gilligan's Island. They did a whole Othello or a Hamlet and sang the to be or not to be speech. Remember when silly sitcoms had cultural references? Uh, and and that honest to goodness started the whole, my whole path. Yeah. What is this play? It oh was Gilligan's God. Island singing Hamlet. Julie Swanson, <laughs> I adore that story. That's, Julie, that's fantastic. Odd. Do you have either of you a favorite? I mean, it's so hard, right? I mean, but do you have a favorite Shakespeare monologue? Well, that I think that's. Nothing is better in my head than the to be or not to be speech. Yeah. I think it's it's so glorious. And it's even good when, you know, AP English, when you go through each line and how much that resonates. For me, I, I think it's it's the perfect monologue. I, you know, of course, I think we've talked about before, I tend to to like the comedies of his, but I, I would go with tomorrow and tomorrow. Mm. That's my fave yeah. Yeah. from the Scott. It's like, we're not, I'm not in a theater, but I'm going to say the Scottish play anyway. I'd rather be safe. Than sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow. And I don't think I've told this story on this podcast before, but uh, in my twenties, my husband and I took a trip to Brazil because he'd been an exchange student there uh, 10 years earlier and wanted to go back and visit his host family. And so we traveled to Recife in Brazil. And uh, I remember one evening we were sitting in the little study of his host father, um, Firmino, 
And he pulled, he knew that I worked in theater and he pulled off the shelf a Portuguese translation of the Scottish play. And he found that speech and he started reciting it to me. And I just, oh, oh gosh, I'll never forget it. It was so beautiful. Oh, wow. Um, as to be or not, for me, I think it's, um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm going to show what a sap I can be, which is not going to be a surprise again, anybody listening to this or to the three folks on here with me. I love two of the later um, monologues from Juliet um, because they're so dramatic, the gallop of pace and then the Ugh. farewell, you know, when she's saying goodbye to everybody and about to drink the poison, because both of them are, and Shakespeare's so great at this, within the monologue form, they're so dramatic. She's tussling in the first with, with all kinds of conflicting feelings about sexuality. And she's tussling in the second with her incredible fear at drinking this stuff. I mean, the friar could be a complete freaking rogue, you know, who's out the killer because he's embarrassed. And is she going to show the requisite faith to sort of carry through with this? And sure, they're heightened and melodramatic and all of that. But there are also these very plaintive moments where this person who in her monologues has grown from, from just a girl, really, at the beginning with O Romeo, O Romeo, into this incredible, mature person who has been stage driving the whole stage managing the whole play for the second half of the play. I mean, there's a reason she says, you know, my dismal scene, I needs must act alone. She knows exactly what she's doing in that last thing. And she goes on and she does it with such faith. It just gives me, uh, it just gives me such a sense of what love can be if we will mm. take a chance and take that leap into the dark um, in moments where everything is at stake. Um, so uh, I told you it'd be a step. No, I love that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, what's interesting is we went from Shakespeare had a lot of monologues and as we know, gorgeous, beautiful inner, inner thought. And, and we stopped for a while in American theater and we're coming back to that now. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the, the monologue that um, had the biggest impact on me recently was Jackie Siblish Drury's Fairview. Mm, which mm -hmm. which it doesn't break the fourth wall until the very end and that um monologue to the audience sort of a pointed uh um dialogue with the audience is so impactful mm -hmm. and it's surprising and um i thought an incredible use of of that technique yeah. Yeah. There's been some truly stunning ones in uh, in some of the pieces we've produced here, too, mm -hmm. that just really, really stick with me. I mean, I think about the monologue in 4000 Miles, where the young man is finally unburdening himself, talking about the. The catalytic event that drove him to his to to his grandmother's place. Um, I think about uh, Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike. Oh my God, the meltdown speech. Vanya's meltdown speech, <laughs> which just brings <laughs> such delight, yeah. uh, such comic, relatable delight to, to everybody in the audience. Um, and it makes me think about um, when we were, we commissioned a monologue, uh, we commissioned a new play, Learning to Stay, um, a number of years ago here at Forward. It was uh, based on a novel by a local writer, Aaron Salello, just a gorgeous, gorgeous novel about 
um, a military spouse and coping with um, her partner's PTSD and 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 how it changed their marriage and 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 how she felt about that relationship and that commitment and um, you know there were these stunning um, sort of internal monologues in mm-hmm. the book that um, you know you read the book and you go oh well that's that's the hook that we we need monologues in this play you know the the brilliant Jim DeVita adapted it for us. And, you know, when he first read the novel, he's like, yeah, there's all these great internal um, chapters of the book where you really get inside the head of, of the, the leading character. And he's like, we'll turn those into monologues. And that's how we're going to convert this into a theatrical form. Yeah, you know, and to continue on the, on the local theme, because there's a lot of love to spread around just in, in what's been going on since the pandemic. I mean, first of all, since you mentioned Jimmy DeVita, I mean, I'm so excited to see his remount. I can't get enough of an Iliad. I could see that 80 billion times, and I've seen it by a number of different actors. But what Jim DeVita did with it in Spring Green, even more than in Milwaukee, just, just blows me away. Um, when he also did it at Milwaukee Rep. Both great performances, very different performances. What he and John Langs unlocked and presented to the audience at the Touchstone is just, it's going to be one of the theater highlights of my life. And we'll get to see it again this summer if we're lucky enough to get tickets. Ha ha, good luck, uh-huh. everybody. Yeah. Um, so, but also in the last year, uh, you know, there have been two really great, uh, you know, long form monologue performances, Elise Edelman and Underneath the Lintel. Um, was terrific uh, out of Milwaukee Chamber. And then, Julie, you made me think about this because of mentioning Hamlet. Um, Jennifer Vosters just killed it in her take on Natural Shocks, the Mm. Lauren Gunderson play about gun violence um, that's riffing off of that that monologue, you know, with Michael Cody directing. And, and, you know, she's no stranger to us here at Forward or to audiences elsewhere in Wisconsin. She is just, to my Mm -hmm. mind, a rising star, an incredibly talented performer, who in this thing that was hand shot with a cell phone in her actual basement, um, hey, the pandemic did give us some good things in mm-hmm. terms of in terms of realism. It's a scary sort of riveting performance. You can't take your eyes uh, off of her. And it's a play I knew. I had seen it performed before. You know, it wasn't frankly in a in a from a playwright who I adore, my favorite of her plays. But but what Jennifer and Michael collaborated on and gave us together was just just terrific. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess, I guess my question then, I totally agree with you, Mike. There are different monologues. Um, some monologues are sort of the inner one person telling a story. Some are the the inner thoughts of the um the, the character. And then some, what we're seeing more and more is is a dialogue with the audience. Um, I think of, you know, Life Sucks with Aaron Posner, where you just threw open the fourth wall and and the audience became um, another character in the play. Um, some of our monologues that we're doing at the end of this month do that. Some are um, the more conventional, um, you know, inner inner workings of a, one person. And and it can be what we what we term monologue as um there are many different approaches to a monologue. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you're right. Sometimes they take the form as in the one I was mentioning in um, 4,000 Miles of, I'm going to now tell you a story. 
mm-hmm. and it, it it will take you on a journey. Uh, and 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 there are the monologues that are are that. And then there are the ones that do what I was talking about uh, in describing our process on learning to stay, which is they allow us, and Shakespeare, again, the master of this, the one who kind of set the template, there are things we sometimes feel like we can't do in theater that you can do in a novel, right? When you're writing a novel and you're getting inside the thoughts of a character that they are, are not the things they would speak aloud. Right. And, and, and in Shakespeare, in learning to stay, and in some of these other examples, the monologues are the spoken aloud things you would not say were there another human on stage to hear them. And it's the, it's the dropping of the veil and allowing you inside the thoughts. And, um, you know, sometimes you, I can't imagine a play without that, that you you wouldn't be able (laughs) to, you know, we, we hide so much in what we share with other people. You know, we obscure so, so much of what's going on inside of ourselves and characters do the same. And monologues often are the window that allow that to come out for the audience to get a fuller understanding of what's happening. Oh, that's, that's just beautifully said. That's so right. Um, and, and to me that my favorite, I think monologues, and you see this in the ones from Juliet that I referenced earlier, you see this particularly in the work of, of the, uh, the Irish, I think again, are just at the top of the, the, the pyramid for me on this, but with, with Brian Friel or with Connor McPherson, that even as they're telling the story, to an audience or just to us, at the beginning of their long form monologues, they're still performing. They're still doing that thing that you're describing, Jen, when you're normally around other people. It's like, and we do that with ourselves. We tell ourselves stories to ourselves, even when we're only talking to ourselves to make ourselves feel better about who or what we are. But if you talk long enough, you get, you strip all that away and you see that, you see language and 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 all those protections just breaking down in these great monologues. And wow, that to me is so exciting because it's getting at the absolute, almost pre-linguistic core of what it means to be a person where we're really, really wrestling with how it all works. And if you are doing that, since language is inherently, I mean, I'll go with Derrida here. You can't have language without repression. I mean, you just, Language is forcing you to structure your thoughts. So if you're getting past that, you're getting the real deal. Now it's like time to, to, to bring in the choreographers and say the only way we can continue to express who we are is through dance. And those moments when they happen in theater are just off the charts great. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think that for the most part, I prefer monologues that are the get inside my private thoughts that I wouldn't normally share. But honestly, my all-time favorite monologue, which I've talked about before on this podcast, it's the storytelling kind. It's the, hey, audience, I want to tell you a story. Mm-hmm. And and of course, it's Night Flight to San Francisco from Angels oh, in America. Um, the, I, I get goose flesh, even just thinking about that monologue. Um, you know, night flight to San Francisco, chase the moon across America. It is a completely stunning thing. I, I think I've described before the feeling of sitting in that Broadway theater, seeing that play for the first time and hearing um, that monologue delivered. And uh, and also a more recent memory when um, Overture Center for the Arts, which is our, uh, our physical home, uh, our performance home here at Forward, 
celebrated their 10th anniversary uh, about five, five years or so ago. Um, there was a big celebratory performance in Overture Hall and all of the resident organizations created little pieces of art to perform um, for a huge sort of gala audience. And uh, we hired the marvelous Marty Goebel to do that monologue uh, in that stunning theater. And yeah, goose flesh. I just, it's, it's yeah. a, a truly stunning. And that's more of the storytelling form. Mm -hmm. And I'm yeah, a big fan a of making me as an audience member a part of the show. I love the um, the pointed, um, I'm ready for a response. I'm talking to you, Julie. Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoy that. And um, it, it's becoming more and more commonplace. And I um, appreciate that. Yeah. Sort of my favorite of that kind of, of I mean, I'm going to go back to Shakespeare again, but even though it can be twisted into just some sort of patriotic rant, which in some ways is the St. Crispian's Day speech Ugh. is incredible, partly because of, I mean, you can go so many ways. You can do an Olivier 1944, you know, all, all in for Britain, or you can, you know, or you can go Kenneth Branagh and get really dark. Um, but it's at, at its core, beneath all the stuff about fighting the frogs and the rest of it, it's a play, it's a speech to me about what it means for us to come together. It's the way mm -hmm. I feel about forward as my family. I mean, it's about people coming together against difficult odds, which so many theater folks can relate to after this pandemic, and saying, we are going to stick together. And those who weren't with us in the trenches, helping to make us all survive and showing faith in the future in this moment are going to be so sorry they missed out on this moment and it's we like few, we happy few. Like, oh. <laughs> yes oh I, I i love that mike yeah i i find myself reciting that one on frequent occasions just sort of to myself <laughs> uh out and about in the world that's that's you your inner monologue <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, I think what I'm gathering from this conversation is we really like monologues of all sorts. Uh, so if you're listening and you too like monologues of all sorts, uh, then you may enjoy our festival that's coming up in a couple of weeks, which will be live in person, but also filmed and available for streaming. So, so that's pretty cool too. I think though that we can say that this is it for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jenna Puff Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced by Scott Hayden, who is watching us, which is its own monologue during how <laughs> all of this as we're recording. Um, you can follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook or Twitter at Forward Theater. As always, that's spelled E-R. And if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us um, wherever you might tune in and be sure to leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. We are so grateful to have you listening and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward Conversations.